I'm Chris, and this is my Writing Table Podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair, and let's begin. Lindsay Palmer is a writer, editor, and educator. She's the author of four novels, Reservations for Six, Otherwise Engaged, If We Lived Here, and Pretty in Ink. She worked in the magazine industry for many years, most recently as features editor itself, and previously at Red Book and Glamour. A graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, she earned a Master of Arts in English Education from Teachers College, Columbia University, and taught AP Literature and Creative Writing at a Manhattan public school for several years. Nowadays, she's a senior editor at Brain Pop, an animated educational site for kids. Which means she spends her days researching topics and then translating what she's learned into an engaging narrative format. Lindsay lives on Cape Cod with her husband and daughter. Welcome, Lindsay. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Lindsay, you cut your teeth in the magazine world, which clearly provided inspiration for your early novels. So how did you make your way into magazines like Red Book and Glamour? You know, I was always a magazine reader as a kid, as a teenager. You know, every month when my magazines would come in the mail, I would be so excited. I'm not sure that kids have that experience anymore, but that was mine. Um, And so I always knew that I wanted to work in magazines. um, And I was lucky enough during college to get internships. I worked at Fitness. I worked at Publishers Weekly and sort of got to know that world. And when I graduated, I connected with my alumni network and A senior editor who happened to be working at Glamour brought me on and, you know, took a chance on me. And that was my foot in the door. Really loved working for that industry for almost a decade. I miss the magazines. You know, you were talking about growing up with magazines. Immediately, I'm thinking, okay, Young Miss and then Vogue and Glamour and and Glamour Don'ts. Remember the Glamour Do's and Don'ts? Yep. Well, unfortunately, I mean, the magazines that I worked at don't exist anymore. Glamour, Redbook and Self. Is Glamour gone completely? Yeah. I mean, they have a website, but the print magazine is gone. A whole bunch of other magazines just shuttered. Um, Parents in Style, Entertainment Weekly. Yeah, it's really sad. I mean, I feel it's nice to know that everyone I know from that world has found kind of a next step and has translated those skills, but it does feel really sad. It feels like a loss. It's not the same as scrolling through a website to get that information. In my, I don't know, late teens, early 20s, scrolling through Town and Country magazine. And looking at the weddings. And that was so cool. You know, those black and white pictures at the front. That's got to be hard on you seeing that happen too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really was a wonderful place to work for people who love words and kind of packaging stories and thinking about, you know, the best way to engage an audience. Exciting start. You're doing exciting things now though, as well. How did you make that jump from journalism to fiction? You know, I was always a fiction writer and always kind of did it on the side. And that's what I studied in college. I was always writing stories. It's not necessarily the way to make a living, (laughs) at least initially. So, you know, even when I was working in magazines, I was writing and then took a while to come up with an idea that would be a novel. And it was seeing this sort of decline of the magazine industry and bearing witness to rounds and rounds of layoffs and shrinking staffs and new leadership coming in again and again and to rebrand the whole operation. And, you know, the inherent kind of humor and absurdity and silliness and bittersweetness that goes along with that process that really made me think, you know, I want to write a novel where the main character is really the magazine. And that was the case for Pretty in Ink. Like it was told from the sort of chorus of voices of people who worked at the magazine, but the main character was really the 
the magazine itself. And so I think of it as both a love letter to that world and a sort of satire of that world. There was a lot to satirize in women's magazines. (laughs) The Devil Wears Prada. How much of that is realistic? Well, I mean, I never worked at high fashion magazines. I think Vogue is a whole other animal. I, in fact, interviewed at Vogue when I was first starting out and I had no idea what I was doing. And I'm not someone who is into fashion at all. And my interview outfit was from The Gap, which was just a clear (laughs) sign that like that was not the world that I belonged in. So my experiences working at magazines were always largely positive and I had wonderful mentors and, you know, there there were some occasional drama queens and, and things like that, which I certainly elevate in the novel, but I did not have that kind of experience of that character from The Devil Wears Prada, luckily. (laughs) You're talking about wearing something from The Gap, and that's kind of what the main character wears going into (laughs) interview. Maybe it was more realistic than we thought. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Tell us about your next book, Reservations for Six. So Reservations for Six is about six best friends. They're three married couples who have been together for a long time. They're all in their late 30s, and they have this tradition that on everybody's birthday every year, they all get together at the same restaurant to celebrate as a group. It's been going on for a decade, and the opening scene of the novel is um, an announcement. The, The first person in the group is turning 40 and he makes an announcement saying that he wants a divorce. And the book follows the next year in all of their lives and sort of the fallout of this announcement, not only for that couple, but for this whole very tight knit group of friends. How has your life compared to that of your female characters? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I would say that all of my characters come out of some piece of me, even if I haven't had that exact experience, because otherwise I wouldn't really know how to write them. They're some kind of emotional truth or, you know, experience I've had. That said, some are closer than others. You know, I mean, working in magazines, the novel we were talking about, Pretty in Ink, like I had a lot of those experiences, but I would say it's sort of like, you know, fractalized across the the different characters because Mm -hmm. um, everybody is kind of getting at it from a different perspective. My second novel, If We Lived Here, follows a couple who is moving in together for the first time and they have sort of the worst possible hunt for a home that you can imagine. I came up with that idea because I had been through an experience of having a horrible hunt for a home in New York City, which I, I feel like must be the worst place to look look for a place to live. Was I the person, you know, in that novel? No, but it was based on my experience. And I remembered when you don't know where you're going to live, I think that feels particularly difficult. I mean, even if you know you're not going to end up homeless, like it's devastating to think about like, where's my home going to be? And so I really did draw on that experience that I had had. And there were some kind of crazy dramatic twists and turns where we ended up in housing court with a landlord when we started to paint the walls and bed bugs came out and we realized we're cutting the lease. And it was this whole dramatic situation. And so I did pull on some of that. And in my third novel, Otherwise Engaged, the main character, Molly, gets engaged and very quickly realizes that her fiance has this book that becomes a best-selling novel that is based on a relationship with his ex. And that was an interesting sort of mirror experience where I was imagining, or as a fiction writer who sometimes draws from my real life, what that must be like for 
people who are close to me who might see a version of what happened that maybe involved them sort of translated into fiction. And I was imagining that for the main character. So that was less based on me than based on imagining how other people might experience my writing of fiction. I would say for this new novel, Reservations for Six, the characters are less based on me, except for Louisa, the main character, um, is a vice principal at a high school. And I worked for several years as a high school English teacher where I really loved my colleagues and yet the administration it was a pretty toxic place to work. So that those sections, much of it is drawn from my my experience of that. Have you experienced like the supper club thing like your your characters do? Not in that form. I did for a while when I, I lived in New York City for a long time and like a, a loose knit group of friends who would meet occasionally and someone would be in charge of like picking a style of food and they would come and they would maybe even do a little presentation about that type of food. It didn't last for very long. It certainly wasn't this long standing tradition. I liked that idea of, of a group coming together as sort of a touch point and that it could be a, a way to sort of focus the narrative that we knew over the course of this year, there were going to be six of these dinners. You know, some people really focus on the characters. Some people will focus more on the setting. That's like you have balanced share on each side that your setting is as much of a character as the rest. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's an interesting observation. I definitely think about both. I would say that I start with character because I am thinking about what's the emotional experience of people. Like that's what I care about when I'm reading. Of course you want plot and you want interesting things to happen, but I really care mostly about like what's going on for these people and learning about that. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, all of the story elements, of course, tied together and setting is an interesting one to think about. I remember hearing, and I liked this, that setting sets the rules for the narrative, which I think is interesting. Like that's a constraint, right? Where you put mm-hmm. something and what can happen there. Setting sets the rules for the narrative. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. It's cool. Writing that down. <laughs> in my notebook. What are your favorite scenes to write? I mean, I like in this book in particular, those dinner scenes were fun. The chapters alternate between these six characters and actually a couple other more minor characters. And so it's fun to go off and have these sort of side things happen between two characters or three characters, and then have everybody come back together again and see how what's happened since the last dinner is affecting everyone. And I like kind of switching between and seeing, okay, what's going on with this duo? What's going on with this trio? How are these different groups interacting? So I think it takes a lot of groundwork to make that work. Like the reader really has to understand who these different people are and what their relationships are to each other. But if you have that established, it's fun to play with. How did you go about writing the novel from so many different points of view? I admire people who can write an outline. And when I hear people talking about spreadsheets and all of that, I always aspire to be that way. But I'm really not. In this case, what I had in mind, I had this sort of initial scenario. And I had in mind for each of the couples what the sort of main conflict was going to be that was going to arise. And beyond that, I kind of figured it out as I went along. I'm a big editor. Like I believe in editing maybe more than writing. So I always know that I'm going to learn more about these people as I'm writing them. And I'll go back and sort of fill in the blanks. I do generally have like the end game in mind, like more or less. For me, writing is as much a discovery as it is like setting down a record that I've already figured out ahead of time. Interesting. I've written one that came from two points of view, but never... What'd you say? Six? No, yeah. six, seven, eight. Because you said there's two more. Yeah, but they're more minor characters. So is it like writing a short story for this character and then another short story? Yeah, I mean, yes, to a certain extent, right? So, so each time you're with the new character, you're 
you're in their world and it's sort of an offshoot of the main world. But I always did have in mind, like, how is this going to connect back to the main story? I mean, that was really the impetus of this, thinking about how one sort of break within a group of friends, a divorce is going to affect all of them. So I always had that in mind, like, how is what's going on with this character or that character connecting back up to that sort of main fissure at the start? Well, it doesn't feel disconnected. I mean, you've done a good job of making it fluid. It doesn't feel like, you know, head hopping. It makes right. sense. Wondered as a writer, if it felt like, okay, now, wait a minute, what are we doing today? Yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean, I honestly think it keeps it interesting, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it takes a long time to write a book. And so if you're getting to be in different people's heads, that's fun. And see, and yeah. often I think it's really fun to see the same situation from different perspectives, because then you realize like, okay, everyone is coming from their own point of view to a certain extent, we're all a little bit unreliable or just, you know, having our own biases and perspective that we're bringing to the situation. But I saw something come up recently. I think maybe it's on Twitter where somebody had brought up the old Venn diagram. It's like, but the Venn diagram is this character knows this, this character knows that, this character knows. So like what, what the other characters don't know instead of what they do know, what they don't know. And I think that's always interesting too. You know, like you were talking about their perception of this situation, but with that is what they don't know because they don't have all the pieces, you know, yeah. they don't all have the same pieces. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like it's fun to play with that with the reader and the characters, what the reader knows. <laughs> and I find that especially fun within a marriage, a romantic relationship. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> what does one party know that the other doesn't and vice versa? Yeah. When you were growing up, and prior to publishing, what were the books and movies that made you want to write novels? I love Little Women growing up. I'm sure I'm not alone in that. And certainly identified with the character, Joe, who becomes a writer. Love Joe. Yeah. She's my favorite. Yeah. And just like the, you know, I had brothers, but the idea of like these sisters at home, that there were these instant playmates, I, I just love that and felt like I could escape into that world. When I was a little bit older, I loved Pride and Prejudice. I really got in, I had like a whole Jane Austen phase. You know, in some ways they seem old fashioned, you know, there are these plots that end in marriage and everyone is happily ever after. They're just such sharp social commentary. Yeah, I really love that. And then I came to Edith Wharton and I feel the same way about that. And that was, you know, when I was a little bit older, teenager, but just really drawing characters so well. I'm always drawn to to books like that. Also, when I was little, I loved the American Girl books. I remembered that I always wanted the dolls and my parents were not about to, you know, buy me these hundred dollar dolls, but they said, you can get the books. <laughs> and at the time, I don't think I was so happy about that, but I really loved them. I, I think back to those stories all the time. Well, I have a closet downstairs full of them from our girls and oh. nobody seems to want them. <laughs> Uh, Our youngest is 26. So all I know is like that when you get to that point where you give them the the American Girl doll and you don't know as a parent that they've just passed the American Girl doll age, (laughs) but you think they're still there for one more year and they open the box and they're like tearing into it. And then they go, oh, thanks. That's great. (laughs) Great. Okay. When you were talking about the Jane Austen books, uh, Sonali Dave has taken those books with Indian families mm. and kind of done this twist and they're really fun. And what she's done is, so we have the very traditional parents, but then we have this generation and how that meshes. And it's not all that different. That's so, so interesting. It's really fun. I, 
Curtis Sittenfeld a few years ago did like a reinterpretation of Pride and Prejudice <laughs> that I love, but I haven't heard of these. Definitely check. Them. What would you tell young Lindsay about her publishing career? And do you have any warnings for her? I would say that as much as possible, you have to keep the writing and the work separate from the industry of publishing. Because when I think back to writing my first book, it was just all about the writing. And then you can't help once you know about the whole machine that it takes to publish a book to sort of have that in your head. And I don't think it serves you. I don't think it helps to have an idea of like, oh, you have to do this for marketing. And are you going to get this review and all of that as much as possible? And I, I try to keep this in mind sometimes more successfully than other times to keep those things separate. A word of advice I would give is that I wish I had published my first book, Pretty in Ink, like five years earlier, because I feel like when it came out, it was just sort of on the tail end of people caring so much about magazines. If it had been more during like the Devil Wears Prada era, I think it would have would have been, you know, more of interest to people. I guess another piece is just that you have to do it for the love of it, because I've always had a full-time job while I'm writing fiction. Um, and I write on the weekends and I write in evenings if I can get up the energy. You have to do it for the love of it. I mean, very few people can make a living of it. And if you can, fantastic. But if you can't, if you love it, you got to do it. What is your process? Got this nugget of an idea. Where do you take it? Not much of a planner. I wish I were. I kind of mull for a while. I mean, that was, I think, the best piece of advice about writing I ever got was from my college mentor who said, let yourself daydream. And that's not my natural state. I'm very much like a to-do list kind of person and want to be productive. But I do find that, you know, the best ideas come to me if I'm like taking a walk and not also listening to a podcast or just, you know, wake up in the morning and let yourself sit there for five minutes in kind of the in-between dream and awake state. Like, you know, you're just open to ideas coming to you. So I find that, you know, once I get going, even though I sort of have the broad strokes of an idea, I have to kind of just sit with it and sit with the characters and think about them and what would happen to them. So it's that kind of freedom, I guess, that kind of like letting myself take time with it combined with discipline, which I'm sometimes better at than others, but really carving out that time, you know, that a Saturday and a Sunday morning, I'll spend, you know, two to four hours really sitting at my computer. I try to do it one night a week. I, I'm not always successful with that, but you know, as much as you want inspiration to strike you, you also have to sit there and, and do the work and, and type the words. How long does it take you to finish a novel? I would say it varies wildly, but probably between a year and a year and a half for a first draft. And again, I'm, you know, I'm working a couple of days a week and then the same amount of time for editing because I really do a lot of rewriting. Talking about the discipline. And when you were talking about the daydreaming, I was thinking, oh my gosh, that takes so much discipline to not jump in there and try to start writing. You know, people are going, what are you working on? Oh, I'm working on something, but it's up here. You know, it's so yeah. that, take, that takes discipline to, to not jump in there. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. Yeah, that that's a different kind of discipline. And I will say, I mean, I have thrown away 100 pages of a draft, 150, you know, I have definitely started novels that that don't end up working. And that's why I always think I wish I could outline, but I just don't think I have it in me to do that. I have to, you know, sit down and try it and see if it works. About the discipline, I think that when we don't spend that time daydreaming, you get locked in to where you've already gone. We don't want to throw those things away. And what you said is kind of a eureka moment. That daydreaming is it's just as important. 
Yeah. It's hard not to be precious about words that you've written. I've worked as a professional writer, editor for, you know, almost 20 years. And I think that helps, right? That you don't, you mm-hmm. don't get so attached, but it's still difficult, especially if you've gotten really into something. What is next for you? Well, I've just started working on a novel. It's very early phases um, about two twin sisters who are kind of butting heads, like rivals, very different personalities. And it takes place on Cape Cod, where I've recently moved with my family. And one of the sisters has moved away and has lived away for a long time and is moving back. And it's sort of about these sisters coming back together and kind of figuring out their relationship after all this time apart. But it's very early phases. I, you know, I I have some ideas of where it's going to go, but, you know, I was just sort of interested in exploring this relationship between two people who, you know, arguably it's the closest relationship one can have that kind of family relationship. And yet siblings don't always get along. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) What are you reading now? Recently moved to Cape Cod. And so I've been on this kind of tear of reading. There are a lot of books that take place on Cape Cod. So I'm sort of halfway through The Orphans of Race Point by Patry Francis that takes place in Provincetown. This kind of sweeping, beautiful novel of uh, these two friends over the course of their life. I just finished The Lincoln Highway by Amor Tolles. That was beautiful. I love his work. He paints just the most interesting characters and it's kind of this epic adventure um, about a world I knew nothing about. I'm reading Um, Rules of Civility right now. Oh, yes. Really good. So wonderful. Speaking of New York Magazine life. Yes. (laughs) And let's see. I also just finished Brown Girls by Daphne Andreatis, which I love. Mm -hmm. It's like little vignettes um, and feels like this love letter to Queens um, in in New York. And let's see. I just also read Sankofa by Chibundu Onuzu. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name correctly. That was also this beautiful book of a woman mourning her mother and kind of discovering her past and her family and her identity. So yeah, that's what I've been reading. I I sort of mix it up between like contemporary novels and just ones that I come across. Have you read The Swans of New York? No, I don't. I've never. A friend of mine told me about it. She's like obsessed with New York history. It's about Truman Capote and it's historical fiction, but it's about the women that Truman Capote surrounded himself with. But it is so good. It's The Swans of New York. I cannot remember the lady's name that wrote it. Okay, but it's a red I book. will look it up. It looks and like, I love like New York society books too. Yeah, like the important yeah. books. Yeah. I didn't know if maybe that was something you'd be interested because in, you were talking about the other yeah, yeah. New York I'm, books. I'm looking it up. Melanie Benjamin. That's it. For someone who's just now thinking about writing and they're just sitting down, maybe in that disciplined daydreaming phase, what advice would you give them? I guess I would say if you're starting a story, it's important to have questions and it's important to be interested in figuring out the answers because I think that's what's going to keep you excited and engaged with a narrative and keep it feeling lively and energized and what will ultimately interest readers. Um, If you go in and you have it all figured out and you don't bring questions to it, then I would imagine that it's not going to hold your interest. So I think, you know, a lot of people say, write what you know, which I agree with to a certain extent, but I think also write what really interests you, write what compels you, what questions you have. In your view, what is good writing? The best writing that I read illuminates an experience, but describes it in a way that I never would have thought to describe it before. So it manages to 
make me say, oh yes, I know exactly what they're talking about, but I wouldn't have thought to describe it that way. So that's why I say I'm like most interested in character and their internal life. When I think of the authors I really love, they can do that. You know, they can put you not only in the shoes of the character, but I don't know, illuminate a way of thinking about a familiar experience in kind of a new way. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Chris. I really enjoyed this. To learn more, visit lindsayjpalmer.com. If you're enjoying The Writing Table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. Thanks so much for your support.